I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves! Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. G'day from Democracy Sausage, wherever you are listening, which is almost certainly your home. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University's Australian Studies Institute, and in this corona-ravaged world at the end of 20, March 2020, I should say, I'm speaking to you from my own home in Inner Canberra. We've got quite a cast of brilliant people with us this week, starting with my regular partner in this, Dr. Maria Teflaga. Hello to you, Maria, from wherever it is that you're broadcasting from. Oh, hello, Mark. Yes, I'm I'm broadcasting from a, across the border uh, at my in my home office. So, hello to to you all. I'm very glad to welcome the wonderful Frank Bongiorno, Professor of History at ANU and a regular on Democracy Sausage. G'day there, Frank. Hi, Mark. I take it you're sitting in your study at home, is that correct? Yes, I am. I'm in the uh, 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 Canberra suburb of Scullin, named after that venerable Depression-era Labor Prime Minister. How fitting. How appropriate, yeah. It is, uh, it is appropriate because, of course, uncertainty abounds. The public sphere is suddenly a virtual space as the community is commanded to divide and hibernate, which is quite different from war when you think about it. We're meant to unite then, but uh, now it's all about division. What does all this mean? Some things are already clear. Google searches for domestic violence assistance have shot up, which is worrying. Jobless numbers are skyrocketing, again, very worrying. And now plant nurseries report huge demand for vegetable seedlings as households look to grow their own food. So it's not just uh, toilet paper and, uh, you know, pasta and rice and so forth that uh, we've seen runs on. We're now seeing a run on, on vegetable seedlings. Of course, we also know that each day's news bombshells are quickly replaced by the next worrying development. That's been the pattern here. It's, it's almost dizzying. Governments are critical again as the, they move to screw down the economy and replace private demand with public support. It turns out the best form of welfare is not a job after all. We keep also hearing that the situation is unprecedented, yet there are previous examples of national crises, some involving war, a comparison that is often invoked here, and notably past pandemics. But certainly the scale of this is mind-blowing, and the fact that it is happening all around the world at once is like nothing any of us have ever seen before. Of course, uh, we hear about the Spanish flu, for example, Frank Bongiorno. That's uh, something you've written about in the conversation recently because it uh, happened just at the end of the First World War and took out more people 
than did that 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 conflict, and uh, that's probably a fact that I guess some people are more conversant with now. But uh, you know, our minds certainly going back to a hundred years ago to that pandemic. Yeah, very much so, Mark. In fact, it probably took out ten times as many people as the First World War. Um, and you know, like the the crisis we're going through at the moment. I mean, it was a, a globalizing sort of phenomenon in the sense that, you know, it was probably conveyed by American troops going to Europe when they went over in 1917, 1918, particularly 1918, and then, you know, basically was spread around the various countries of the world via troops returning home after the war. So, um, you know, rather like the situation we're going through at the moment, it, it, it emphasises that kind of interconnectedness, I guess, the way in which, you know, we're, we're very much... Uh, a part of a globalised world. Well, that was true of, of 1918-19. It's even more true now. Isn't that a fascinating parallel, really? Because you would, you would probably say, Maria, that um, 2020 is, is uh, quite a bit different from 1918. You know, we're a much more globalised world now. We have international travel and so forth. But the point Frank Bongiorno makes there is a really interesting one, that due to that, that you know, historically atypical event, a global war where you had uh, vast numbers of people moving uh, from country to country, um, that uh, you actually had something strangely quite similar in terms of the, the uh, transmission of this via people moving between countries and carrying the, the, the disease with them. I guess that's the, the point about uh, pandemics is that they're actually as old as human history itself and and the role of, of trade and, and interconnectedness is sort of crucial to their spread, you know, if it's not coming along caravans, coming along sea routes and, mm. you know, um, as Frank said, in the time of the First World War, it was about the return of, of returned servicemen, which is why it was so large and huge and devastating. And, and today in an era of mass and cheap air travel, like I guess that's what makes this remarkable is that we're pretty much all simultaneously in lockdown or near lockdown all at the same time. Frank, you're a historian and, of course, uh, as I say, you've written about this Spanish flu uh, and we're just making the point about how critical uh, people movements are in the in the uh, expansion of a disease, a pandemic uh, like the one we're now experiencing Given the uh, the point Maria was just making about how democratic travel, international travel, has become, did governments as a whole just fail to to learn that lesson of the Spanish flu uh, and apply it to this much more mobile world now? Did they move too slowly? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, certainly there have been very different um, responses uh, in in you know various national jurisdictions and clearly some countries seem to have handled it rather better <clears throat> pardon me rather better than others um my sense is that there was um a pretty early recognition in australia at any rate of the danger uh, posed by international travel but of course it was seen as a chinese phenomenon in the very early period and and so restrictions were imposed progressively on a number of countries that had had major outbreaks and yes in retrospect clearly there probably should have been um, stronger measures earlier but governments of course like the rest of us are having to to observe and 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 kind of deal with this as they go along and um you know we, we obviously even now um know uh, or don't know a great deal about um, the ways in which this virus works. But clearly that interconnectedness, you know, in, in 2020 is so much greater than it was back in 1919. And that has, you know, clearly magnified the danger. And we've seen, obviously, just in the last couple of weeks, the way in which leisure cruise ships have been, um, you know, 
uh, to use a, a now familiar term, petri dishes, for this kind of uh, infection. And um, clearly there have been some major errors around that. Yeah, you're not joking. I understand that uh, uh, there's um, it's not just cruise ships that are uh, petri dishes for this virus. It's um, it's naval ships as well. And I've heard that uh, there's at least one U.S. naval ship uh, that has a number of corona cases on it, and they're well aware of the of the fact that you know with the the close living conditions that people have on on naval ships uh, and the you know the air conditioning circulating and everything else that uh, it's just a um, you know, a, a kind of a floating disaster, really. We've seen that with so many cruise ships, and there are now cruise ships, of course, that are just, uh, you know, have, are struggling for somewhere to land their their um, their passengers. Yeah, I mean, it, it's clearly, um, you know, there's, there's a long way to go, isn't there, with this uh, with this uh, crisis, and uh, governments are, are having to improvise. And and yeah, when a ship arrives off the coast and it's clearly got a significant number of infections on it um, at the moment. Um, we're getting a range of different responses, including, I think, in the United States, one instance where, uh, you know, there was a, a an idea from the president that it shouldn't land at all because it had, uh, you know, sort of mess up the uh, the country's figures. Um, we seem to have moved beyond that. But clearly, <laughs> there are still a lot of a lot of uncertainties about, you know, how to respond to these sorts of situations. I think this is the point, right? That this this pandemic has moved so quickly that it has really overwhelmed government's capacity to forward plan i mean it's it's actually hard for me to to really come to grips with the fact that like last monday it was we were still in a world where the idea of being able to only meet with two people which is now the current set of restrictions was was something that you probably might not have imagined. It's it's almost as if the world is reinventing itself every four days. Yeah, much like the virus itself, it's a, there's kind of an exponential increase exactly. in restrictions. How do you think the the Australian government is responding? Do you think this? I mean, because there's been a very live debate in Australia um, about the, uh, the the pace at which restrictions have been applied on. On uh, on movement, on association, effectively on the functioning of normal commerce and so forth. We know that there's been tension between uh, some of the state premiers and the prime minister over this issue. There are some differences that have emerged in in the, the speed at which they want to sort of clamp down on this. Overall, though, do you think uh, the uh, you know that the numbers, which are much more gentle in Australia than they are in 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 other countries, do you think the numbers suggest that the Australian uh, governments together have got it right? Well, I suppose the figures at the moment are telling us that community infection, as distinct from individuals coming in from overseas, are still relatively limited. I mean, obviously, uh, there have been. Uh, particular issues in in Sydney in New South Wales, uh, but associated with cruise ships. So, I mean, broadly speaking, um, you know, uh, we, we'd have to say that governments have probably responded fairly well. Um, we've been reminded, obviously, uh, in the last, uh, particularly last fortnight, that we are a federation, and that has its benefits. Uh, it also has its downside, and one of the the problems with it, of course, is that. You know, there's been at times an incoherence about um, issues such as school closures, to take just one. Um, uh, we've had border closures um, between states and territories, which, in fact, we also saw back in 1918 and 19. So uh, in that sense, you know, we are, again, hearing echoes of 
the Spanish flu and the ways in which, you know, that too um, tested the Federation. Um, obviously, the Federation was much younger then. It was not even two decades old. And, um, you know, whilst, you know, you got cooperation between state governments back then, and we've seen plenty of cooperation this time round through the so-called National Cabinet, um, you know, we, we've also seen a range of different um positions coming from states and territories. They're clearly getting different kinds of advice um, from their own medical authorities. And at this stage, you know, it seems to me a broadly national response has held, but clearly, you know, at at a number of points, um, it's kind of threatened to collapse because um, for the most part, um, state governments, or at least certainly the state governments of Victoria and New South Wales, have wanted to take, um, you know, a, a, a more stringent line on a whole range of issues. Yeah, I think the the federal dimension of this has sort of, I guess, hung a lantern on the on the reality that um, the advice that the medical advice itself is contested because, of course, this is a novel viral phenomena, and that the you know, people are using the best data available and they're obviously using models of previous epidemics or other similar types of viruses to try to predict what this new virus will do. But of course, they don't fully understand that because it is a new virus, right? But it it has sort of, um, you know, not only hung a, a lantern on the fact that the advice is contested, which is why you get different opinions from different state and federal chief medical officers, but it's also sort of, you know, on a, in a positive side, I guess it has sort of seen some contestability of um, of these points and perhaps they might have been debated more, at least a bit more publicly than we might have gotten if we, if we weren't a federation. And this sort of goes to the sort of, I guess, lack of transparency around some of the decision-making uh, processes or the logics behind decisions that we've sort of had in Australia. And to sort of give an example of that, New Zealand has uh, basically... Uh, a transparent kind of threshold system for what it's going, you know, for why it will lock down or what the system will kind of be, right? A bit like our fire warning system. But we don't really seem to have that in this country. And so it's not always clear why decisions have been made. And then there are disputes within the, the federation. And and this just leads to confusion. And so whilst I think, broadly speaking, our, our government has done a pretty good job in what are really difficult circumstances, um, it has shone a light on how our country is actually run. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, that one, Maria, because it goes to uh, this feeling of um, of kind of ambiguity about where, you know, what, what the policy is at the moment, a sense that, okay, the policy today might be, might be communi- you know, able to be communicated. It might even be able to be understood by the broad majority of people, but there's no sense that it is going to be the policy tomorrow. It's felt like all the way through there's been this inexorable sort of progression, if progression is the right word, toward what people, you know, generally refer to as a full lockdown. And that might mean even in some of the details, different things to different people, but there's been this sort of uh, move towards that in increments over time and this has led to a sort of a sense of almost like a permanent temporariness in the uh, in the in the uh, in the kind of uh, sense of uh, this progression as i say and and that has been i think quite unsettling so you've had this kind of strange circumstance where you've had people who would be you would think severely disadvantaged by a 
full lockdown, nonetheless calling for it. Uh, employees and employers both saying, look, shut us down, because at least then we have clarity. Uh, those people who have their wages cut off are, are then able to say, well, I've had my wages cut off. That enables me to very clearly access whatever uh, you know, state aid there is in that circumstance, as and the employer has uh, the ability to say to the landlord, to the bank, uh, whoever else they owe money to. Well, we've been shut down by government fiat as a result of this corona crisis, and therefore we ha- we cannot meet any of these you know outgoings, any of these liabilities. So. Uh, it's, I, you know, we, we, the government's been trying to kind of manage this situation almost, uh, sort of keep as much of the economy going for as long as possible. Yet there's been no doubt really in most people's minds that, uh, where this is sort of going to end up. And, uh, you know, as we speak today, um, we're on the first day of this, as you, as you made the point, Maria, this, uh, this new rule where we can meet with only one other person. People cannot gather in groups, uh, of more than Two, even within houses, unless uh, they are the residents of that house. So you know you can't go visit your friend next door or, or whatever. It's uh, really uh, quite an extraordinary situation. I guess. I mean, I, I agree with that. Um, but I guess to sort of put the the counterfactual, you could sort of argue that the the government is trying to get people used to the idea. This is this is a generous interpretation. Uh, trying to get people used to the idea of. Um, you know, limiting their behaviour and changing their behaviour, sort of giving people time to adapt. Um, whether or not that is actually working, I think, is really kind of in many ways open to to question just given the amount of time and effort we seem to have spent last week, for example, arguing about how long a haircut should take when surely we have more kind of pressing priorities. But it does sort of get to the heart of the the complexities of the sort of public policy problem that the government is facing and an immediate sort of shutdown presents its own problems as we've sort of seen in India where, you know, millions of people who are like homeless or who do not have accommodation um, in the place where they work are like literally walking hundreds of kilometres back to to their own villages. Um, so, so. I mean, I have I have a lot of sympathy for the government, while at the same time I think that they could have certainly done a much better job at communicating. And I think again, transparency around the decision making processes, you know, and why decisions have been made would be would be a lot more helpful because so so many of the decisions to date have been really very arbitrary. I mean, you know, weddings five people, funerals ten people, boot camp ten people. Why? Yeah, and I think you could argue that some of the communication, particularly from the federal government, I think has been inadequate in a whole range of ways. Um, It it just seems to me that um, that they really struggled to explain why it was that schools should stay open. And I I think people, and particularly uh, teachers, um, many parents didn't buy the idea that, you know, schools should stay open you know, partly because it would create all sorts of problems in terms of health workers, you know, parents who are health workers wouldn't be, would have to stay home. These sorts of arguments, I think, didn't gel with the other aspects of the government's messaging, which were all about the importance of minimising social contacts. Um, And so, you know, as soon as they turned to that 
school issue, the arguments were of a quite different order from the ones that were being used more generally. And then, you know, the idea about, you know, not not shutting down this or that part of the economy, it, it also seems to me that people didn't buy um, the kinds of economic arguments that were being put. Um, and so, the, the kind of internal contradictions in, in the messaging, I think, has often been unhelpful, as, as is also the method of issuing, you know, via press, um, uh, yeah, eff- effectively press conferences, long lists of restrictions. I mean, we all know, yes. as university teachers, for instance, we know you do not teach students by standing up the front of a class and, 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 and basically reading stuff out like that. We know that people don't take it in. We know people turn it off, becomes boring. I mean, personally, I've stopped watching prime ministerial media conferences because I find them dull. Um, well, think, they're so confusing. Yeah, they're confusing, but also dull. I mean, they basically uh, offer information that is better accessed in other sorts of ways, better consulted by going onto the web or whatever. And that means that opportunities for... Um, you know, I, I guess more meaningful communication with the citizenry have actually been missed here. So I think the, the Prime Minister's I, I think those – sorry, sorry, Frank. I was just going to say I have some sympathy for uh, the government in one respect and, 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 again, to sort of harp on the kind of 1918-1919 Spanish flu situation – these days, of course, we have a very comprehensive mass media. There are all kinds of genuinely credible expert alternative sources of information from that which, you know, the government might issue. It's not, I mean, back then it may have been speaking largely by radio and, 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 and newspapers, obviously. Uh, and there wouldn't have been much in the way of, um, you know, uh, other communication, presumably, uh, offering alternative points of view. Here in this situation, we have, as I say, very credible medical experts, someone like Dr. Norman Swan or, or, or groups of physicians getting together to contest the government position. And I think that makes it very hard um, for the public to know exactly who to trust and very hard for the government to, com- you know, uh, conclusively... Uh, Close off a, you know, if I can put it like that, a, um, a you know, the, the rationale of a particular policy. I was just going to say, I mean, doctors disagreed in 1919 too. So, I mean, that's one of the parallels is that there there was a range of opinion amongst doctors back then uh, a, a, as well. Um, but certainly, yeah, I mean, essentially, the the, the utterly dominant media platform in 1919 was print newspapers. Um, there was, in fact, very little else and. You know, it's a much more complex media environment today, and no doubt that does offer its challenges to the government. There's a lot of shoddy advice. I mean, there was shoddy advice around back in the Spanish flu epidemic, and you, you know, you had sort of people trying to retail quack cures and so on. Um, clearly, you know, similar sorts of things are happening on social media today, where you get both authoritative and good advice, and stuff that's just pure charlatanism. I think sort of what it shows up is that the the government, uh, the federal government, its clear priority and its area of responsibility is is the economy, right? And um, they're they're very keen to to keep uh, economic stimulus or you know the the economy ticking over for as long as possible because for them it's lives and livelihoods. And I think in the context of the states where they run the hospitals, their primary concern is public health because that's what they're going to. Um, 
that's the crisis that they actually have to administer and actually have to to deal with. And I, I don't mean to say this in a cynical way. That's that's not what I'm trying to say at all. Um, but if we sort of if if we sort of look at it from the federal government's perspective, you know, they they keep talking about the fact that they have two crises and they're trying to walk two different tightropes. But in times of crisis, people want to hear certainty, right? If we look at Trump's approval numbers in the United States, they they are um, his approval is is very high, which is insane, right? Like, why is he? doing so well, even though he is literally presiding over a catastrophe or soon to be a catastrophe. And it's, you know, his his position is very kind of clear on uh, what his priority is, even if his actual actions are grossly irresponsible. And I think this is the, this is the problem with the government's approach ultimately, right, is that it's too contingent. Um, it's it's quite complex, but without being able to be nuanced. Like to put it another way, you know, the the prime minister sort of struggles to be simple when he needs to be, and seems to sort of struggle to pivot to be nuanced and complex in a clear way when he needs to be. He sees, he manages to sort of get like in the reverse, if that makes sense. <laughs> Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point because, uh, you know, when he said, for example, um, you know, he talked about keeping schools open, a lot of the argument, as Frank was just saying before, was about um, protecting the economy and recognising there were a whole lot of essential workers whose children were in those, children were in those schools and who would be then withdrawn from uh, those frontline services. Then when he was asked what is an essential service, he said anyone with any, any person who's employed, you know, any job, uh, where someone is employed as an essential job. Well, it, it undervalued that whole message and just sounded like a marketing line when you actually needed proper, exactly. clear instruction and uh, proper, clear a sense of what the policy actually meant. Yeah, I think he, he needed a, a really consistent message on school closures and he never managed it. I mean, it, it needed to be about public health. He needed to persuade people that uh, it, it was a better solution in terms of managing COVID to keep the schools open than to close them. And he never managed to do that. It was always, he shifted the terrain at each point. We moved from, from the terrain of, of kind of controlling the virus to, to all sorts of other issues that, that were, you know, in some ways, no doubt, perfectly rational, but simply didn't work as 
political communication and uh, uh, teachers in particular. I mean, you know, just, you know, you look at some of the things being said by teachers, by families of teachers, they thought they were basically being used. They thought they were being used as babysitters, actually, and it was the completely wrong message to send if you were trying to persuade people that there were good, uh, you know, disease control reasons for keeping schools open. Let's turn now to the uh, the National Cabinet. Um is, is it really a national cabinet, Frank Bongiorno? No, it's it, it's a kind of uh, essentially a, a, a glorified COAG arrangement. Um, I mean, we um, have never had a national government in Australia. It was a, a matter of live debate in the early years of the Second World War. Um, uh, there was an advisory war cabinet established that did include all of the major parties, leaders of all of the major parties, but it it, it was that. It was advisory. It wasn't the executive. Um, Menzies, who was prime minister in the early years of the war, would like to have established a national government. Uh, Herbert Evatt, Herbert Veer Evatt, who was a Labor member, former High Court judge from 1940, he wanted a, a national government, no doubt, you know, with a, a major role for himself. John Curtin resisted it. John Curtin saw the role of a Labor opposition as being that, to, to, to keep the government accountable. He believed that it could cooperate through an advisory war council. Um, Australia didn't have a national government. Britain, of course, did during the, well, both First and Second World Wars, Britain had national governments for some of the time at least. Um, but no, what we're seeing at the moment isn't a national government. It's essentially a committee of uh, federal and state government representatives. Yeah, I think if the government wants to criticise Labor for being an opposition, then they, they can't really have it both ways, right? Like you can't you can't criticise someone for offering constructive criticism, and I think the opposition, broadly speaking, has been constructive, um, when you won't include them in your deliberations. And I, I think it's been interesting to observe the Prime Minister's line of reasoning around that. Like he sort of said things like, well, it's only got to be governments. Um, and then he's also relied on the fact that uh, it's, you know, the, there are Labor states in his, his COA government. But what if they were all coalition governments, right? Like logically that just doesn't kind of make sense. And I just sort of wonder as to why it is that ultimately the Prime Minister doesn't want to be seen to be working hand in glove with the opposition at a time of national crisis. Does anyone else have any ideas why? Well, I think it's a really interesting point you raised, Emery. I, I, my understanding of where Labor is on this, where Anthony Albanese is on this, is that had he been asked to be on a national cabinet in some capacity, he would have said yes. He would have felt like he had no choice but to say yes but that um, he also probably would not have actually liked it. Now, whether that's true or not, I, I you know, one can't know. But um, it, it's quite an interesting thing because when you consider, uh, you know, consider it from Scott Morrison's point of view, there's there's a bit of umbrage from the from the uh, the Morrison government about the. Um, you know about the, the the positioning now. What they see is the the sort of divisiveness of uh, of the opposition criticizing some aspects of government policy. They say this is um you know an attack on bipartisanship. 
Labor, on the other hand, says, no, no, we've given you all the bipartisanship. We've voted through all the, all the provisions you wanted us to, uh, to, to put through. We've passed things even that we had some concerns about, such as allowing people to dip into their own superannuation. That's something that Labor was not in favour of. But they have given their assent to all of the emergency measures, including this $40 billion, um, you know, discretionary fund that uh, the government can, can access without having to take it back to Parliament, just take uh, anything over a billion dollars to to the opposition so labor says we've given you all of that but um you know that doesn't you know bipartisanship doesn't mean we lose our responsibility to question policy to query things and and so forth um so one wonders whether it was a tactical error by scott morrison if he's looking for that kind of uh, you know total um, uh, you know, oneness from the opposition. Why he didn't just, uh, you know, pull them closer and put put uh, the leader of the opposition into this um, into this mechanism. Mark, I certainly I don't know what Albanese's um, opinion was, but certainly an invitation to join this body I think would have put him on the spot. I think it would have been uh, difficult for the Labor Party. It would have made their position. Uh, an uncomfortable one, not least with the closure of Parliament now till what till August. Um, you know, I, I think that makes the role of the opposition and the leader of the opposition all the more important. So, you know, just in a in a kind of um, broad sense, I think that that I'm glad that 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 you know, um, Labor isn't inside this this so called national cabinet because I think that there is an important role. For oppositions to play, and Albanese would struggle to play that role if if he was actually uh, inside that cabinet, having to play uh, you know uh, a different kind of uh, um, or to have a different level of responsibility for the decisions that are actually coming out of it. Yeah, I I, I was surprised that no consideration has been made for alternatives for Parliament to sit until uh, August. I mean, um, yes, there's obviously a contagion uh, issue but that I mean we're all we're, I mean we're, we're recording this uh, podcast uh, with some interesting difficulties from our respective houses I, I do think that the Australian Parliament which is a de- which is has a department to run it could put together some kind of solution to allow for Parliament to co- to continue to sit in some kind of virtual capacity, which would be ultimately good for legitimacy for all the decisions that governments are ultimately seeking to make, particularly when trust is at an absolute premium, when we're requiring everyone to act collectively, you know. So, so I don't see why we are diluting uh, these important institutions, particularly when everyone is clearly willing to come together on that. We've seen that already from the way our politicians have acted to date. Yes, it's a very interesting point you make. It does rather put the federal government in an interesting situation if they're saying to everyone else all around the economy in all the different ways that you can, you have to sort of find new ways of working, but we're not going to find a new way of working ourselves. If we can't meet in Canberra for a normal parliamentary session, then we we can't meet at all at a time of... uh, global and national crisis uh, of, co- of course a democracy does need its parliament it does need accountability it does need the the quality control that is associated with being answerable in the parliament uh, for for policy decisions i should say for completeness that um what Labor did agree with uh, with the government on that uh, single day sitting uh, was that the Parliament could, the House of Reps at least, could meet with as few as 31 members. Uh, so that would allow for quite a good degree of spatial separation, I guess, 
in the chamber itself, but of course that does still involve all of the you know the travel uh, from around the country that uh, that would be necessary for that, and 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 probably some staff and and parliamentary officials and so forth. So it's not you know there are genuine. Um, contact issues here that do need to be managed if they if they run the parliament like that. But as you say, they may be able to do it also uh, by agreement between a, a cooperative opposition and and a, a government looking for solutions. They may be able to do it by Zoom or some other uh, mechanism like that. And these things aren't beyond the wit of a uh, sophisticated uh, 21st century economy, I wouldn't have thought. Oh, and I think in terms of flying people into Canberra, um, you know, it's striking that... Um uh, chartered aircraft seem to be available at other times for party fundraisers and the like. Um, you know, so <laughs> um, I, I'd be pretty sceptical that they couldn't have been used to at least allow for rudimentary par- par- uh, parliamentary sittings with obviously a reduced number of members in a way that wouldn't spread infection. I mean, we don't know where the virus is going to go from here and it may well be that um, we're, we're entering into a, a period where that wouldn't be feasible. But you know that they didn't call off parliament till you know may or june they called it off till august i mean this this is uh it seems to me was well and truly over the top and really just totally inappropriate for a parliamentary democracy well look we've been talking about some very grim stuff here uh the, you know it's a very grim time for the world and we're all experiencing it firsthand in terms of the changes we're needing to make to our lives and people are there'll be people listening to this who have literally seen their income evaporate um, let's look at perhaps some of the lighter side of this, Maria. I know that you've, uh, um, you know, you're finding new ways of uh, entertaining yourself at home. I, I think you were saying earlier you're doing a bit of cooking. Uh, yes, I uh, I do enjoy making sourdough. Uh, bread, which was something I was already doing beforehand because you have to keep your starter alive. And I, I have to say the uh, quality of my loaves has improved markedly now that I'm here to baby every single one with the tender loving care it requires. So there's a lot of cooking going on at your household. Anything else that's, uh, that's changed? Well, I've been learning to teach online, and if any of my students are listening, I apologize. I'm sorry. I'm doing my best. Um, but otherwise, no, I mean, um, it. the ANU had uh, a pause last week uh, on all classes, which uh, gave us the opportunity to rapidly upskill in a whole new uh, skill set around teaching online. And so I've spent uh, a lot of last week doing that, uh, working out how to work from home. And of course, yeah, sort of stress baking to uh, to relieve tension. I've been enjoying a lot of toast. You doing any stress baking, Frank? Uh, no baking. Um, <laughs> yeah, similar sorts of things. Otherwise, though, Mark, I mean, yes, uh, learning more about teaching online. Um, I'm a head of school, so I've obviously a lot of, you know, administrative things to do to, I guess, you know, make that transition or to help my department, my school make that transition to, to online teaching, to ensure a reasonable level of, of re, you know, what they're calling research continuity. That is, you know, ensuring that um, PhD students are looked after, uh, ensuring that we can still run you know collective activities seminars and the like using the technologies that are available so it's bringing out you know i think a lot of people's creativity in a way um you know we're finding out 
that we're adaptable perhaps in some ways and not in others. I'm certainly have been reminded of my limitations as far as IT uh, goes. Um, I have to say, <laughs> yes. uh, I've spent a lot of time grappling with, uh, you know, various apps and software and so on that I wouldn't normally use. And, you know, I think th- th- these sorts of things are obviously happening uh, across the country. Some people get very badly affected. Academics, for the most part, at least full-time academics, uh, are, you know, are, are probably in a, a much better position than exactly people. So we're very fortunate in in, in that exactly. Um, but you know, a lot of people are going to have a period of great economic distress ahead, and it's going to be a real test, I think, for for yes, for governments, but more generally for civil society. You know, ha- how do we deal with that? Um, the last really big economic crisis of the thirties. You know, Australia was under all sorts of stress and pressure, but that said, it it never degenerated into a shambles. Uh, It never degenerated into mass violence. Uh, The political system broadly held up. Uh, The the systems of economic management that were still evolving at the time more or less held up. Um, So, you know, it'll be important to see and to to, to watch closely how that all unfolds in, in the weeks and months ahead. Yes, well, uh, as you've been talking, my little dog Vincent has been just letting out a few kind of impatient sort of yelps, uh, uh, you know, basically saying uh, time to to let me outside. Uh, and uh, I guess that's just the sort of world we live in now. We're we're all sort of operating out of our homes. I've got a kind of a makeshift studio set up here in the dining room, and um, it it comes with some advantages, of course. Uh, not much, not no no trouble travelling. But um, yes, everything else seems a little bit improvised. Frank, you've been uh, also having a few Zoom meetings with friends, the odd glass of wine, uh, uh, sort of uh, enjoying a, keeping relationships alive, but not face to face. Yeah, we're learning new ways of, of, of sociability, aren't we? Um, and yeah, look, again, it'll be really interesting to see what comes of that and what the, you know, the broad effects of, of this are on the way in which people sort of see the world. Um, will we become more insular? Um, I think something that you've raised, Mark, in your writing around this, you know, will people work from home more commonly, you know, the the, the sort of uh, international mobility that that many people have taken for granted, particularly the professions and the middle classes over the last 30 or so years, um, you know, is that going to hold up or or are we entering into something quite different? All of that's going to be really interesting, I think. It it has sort of highlighted uh, which jobs are truly essential, such as our, our cleaners, our garbage collection people, the people who work in our supermarkets, our nurses and doctors. Yes, and some of those people are not particularly well paid and haven't been particularly well uh, kind of respected, I guess. You know, hospital cleaners, Uber drivers, people who do vital services, provide vital services, but you wouldn't say that's reflected particularly well in their in their income and we are having exposed to us very, very uh, clearly how vital their work is, what a contribution they make. And that's probably, you know, one of the positives that uh, that might come from this. Maria, just before we go, um, I think we've had uh, a few um, uh, uh, sort of reviews come in. I'm not sure whether you've got them to hand at the moment, but uh, if you have, perhaps you could um, read them out. Yes, we have had a few reviews come in, and so thank you very much for those. The first is from KV. Uh, Democracy Sausage more than repeats the news headlines. It's a great podcast, informative and constructive. Great conversations with interesting people. Thank you, KV. And then 
this other one, which I think is really an ode to you, Mark, from um, Kalusi, which says, Tasty, five stars, a great podcast. Sausages are my new passion, and this has really helped me expand my techniques and especially if, uh, refine my andouille. I think that's how you pronounce that word. I had to look it up. Highly recommend for and other sausage partiers like me. Well, thank you very much. It's terrific always to get your feedback uh, from listeners. Uh, so if you ever want to contact us, you can do so. The Twitter handle is Apps Policy Forum. That's A-P-P-S Policy Forum. And the Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod. Thanks very much to Professor Frank Bongiorno and to Dr. Maria Taflaga. And we'll see you again on Democracy Sausage or talk to you again uh, very soon. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Wash your hands. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.